when natural resource companies, big ones, are selling at very low price earnings multiples and they seem cheap, it's because commodity prices are unusually high. So when the companies seem their cheapest, they're their most expensive. Okay. When commodity prices have fallen apart uh, and companies' free cash flows are constrained by low commodity prices and their earnings, their price earnings ratios are negative or very high. Assuming that they're relatively low cost producers of the commodity in question, which is itself underpriced, uh, when these companies seem very expensive, they're often very cheap. So it's important to look behind the numbers and see how the numbers are constructed if you're going to be in the, in the natural resources business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crunch the Numbers podcast. My name is Guillermo Corga. I'm currently the president of Lisbon Investment Society, which is a finance club run by university students here in Portugal. Well, this is a special one with a very special guest. That doesn't need any introductions for sure, but well, for the knows that for the ones that don't know him, it's one of the greatest natural resources investor of all time. It's a reference in the commodity sector. It's a speaker in several conferences, and it's also the former CEO and president of Sprout US Holdings. Recruit, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our podcast. Guillermo, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. No, the pleasure is all on our side. Well, Rick, first of all, at a personal side, I would like to, to thank you in the name of all the members of our association. For accepting our invitation and sharing your vast knowledge with us. Well, starting with the first question, and assuming that our viewers are not like experts in the commodity sector, um, I would make a, a more broader question. So can you identify which are the main commodities and natural resources that are going to be an essential part of this green future, green economy, that well, apparently it's what actually is going to be the future, right? Uh, I'll back off any editorial comments about the efficacy of green. Uh, green is very much in the eyes of the beholder. Um, and I think I'll segregate between the commodities, which will be essential for our future, and the politically correct commodities uh, that the big thinkers in the world, <clears throat> the World Economic Forum, as an example, would prefer to have. If you look at the... Uh, electric economy, which I very much believe in, by the way, not as a consequence of electric vehicles, but more as a consequence of economic growth, population growth, and the urbanization of the world, you start with copper. Uh, it's an enormously important commodity, one where demand will grow, but supply will fall as a consequence of society's underinvestment in copper for a very long time. You move from there pretty easily to nickel, um, uh, a very essential commodity. Uh, the glamour commodity uh, among all of them is probably lithium. Uh, and I would begin by telling my young student friends that contrary to popular belief, lithium isn't scarce. Uh, I grew up in the geothermal and oil and gas business thinking that lithium was a waste product. <laughs> uh, the truth is that the world has an awful lot of lithium. What happened is that demand for it increased so fast that we don't have sufficient processing capacity. We don't need to find it. We just need to bottle, de-bottleneck, pardon me, the means of production. Cobalt is interesting too. Uh, cobalt is the odd commodity where the price could go up if the supply increased because fabricators are holding back on the utilization of cobalt because they're unsure of being able to obtain supplies. That unsure nature goes mainly to the fact that cobalt is produced in fairly unstable countries, Congo, uh, 
quite unstable, uh, and Russia less unstable, but still a, a, a country that makes uh, mainstream investors nervous. Uh, although this is very, very unpopular, I think that you need to consider uranium uh, in an odd way uh, as a green metal too, uh, simply because if we're concerned about carbon, the most efficient way to generate baseload electricity uh, without flooding vast uh, riparian terrains with hydroelectric is nuclear. Uh, people are terrified of nuclear. Exactly. That notwithstanding, uh, it is a very important part of the existing energy mix in the world. And it's a fuel whose utilization is growing uh, in societies that don't have a second choice. It's interesting, too, that when we talk about the Earth's future, <clears throat> the green narrative uh, ignores oil and gas. If you uh, visit with people who talk about what they want as opposed to what they can have what they seem to want is a world without oil uh, people need to be very careful uh, with what they ask for uh, my suspicion is that oil utilization in 2040 will be effectively on par with oil utilization now its market share among uh, energy materials will be lower but the aggregate demand for energy uh, in 2040, which is, by the way, not that far away, 18 years away, yeah. uh, the aggregate energy demand worldwide will be up by 35 or 40%, which is to say, will we need more solar? Yes. More wind? Yes. More electricity? Yes. And more oil and gas? Yes, too. So the question that you ask uh, really goes to all the stuff of mankind. Uh, the narrative, that is to say, the green narrative is different. But I think what you'll learn in finance over time, if you haven't learned it already, is that the narrative and the reality are often very different. Uh, the narrative is a trading vehicle and the reality is an investment vehicle. Awesome. That's really interesting because I had like here three or four questions about some things that you've already responded, but that's that's really awesome. Like my, my first, my sorry, my second question, like a follow-up question would be, so you mentioned a lot of commodities um, natural resources, like what, which are the ones that you consider that are still undervalued or that the market hasn't fully priced in, like the importance that they will have in this transition? And if you were in your 20s, there, which companies would you be looking at to gain exposure to? to well, let's, back, let's back up a little bit uh, and give your members a, a base thesis in resource investing. <clears throat> First of all, natural resource businesses are amazingly cyclical and capital intensive. Um, what happens is that when a commodity runs up in price, the industry can't increase supply very fast because it's capital intensive. So prices always overshoot to the upside. Uh, and then when supply does come onto the market uh, and high prices constrain demand, commodities overshoot to the downside. The upshot of that is that, and your members need to really get this in their brains, in, to be a successful investor in raw materials, you either need to be a contrarian or you are going to be a victim. That's the choice. You can do what's comfortable and lose money, or you can do what's uncomfortable and make money. Specifically, what you look for is a commodity where its utilization is essential to the lifestyle that we live and poor emerging markets people aspire to. Where that commodity has been in oversupply and the global average industry selling price of the commodity is less than the, glo than the global average 
cost of production, which is to say an industry in liquidation. Mm -hmm. In that circumstance, either the price of the commodity goes up or it becomes unavailable and global living, living standards fall. So as an example, Guillermo, were you and I talking uh, in early summer when oil was in oversupply around the world and the price of oil fell to 20 US dollars a barrel, I would have told you uh, the case for oil goes like this. The total cost of production, fully loaded, including prior year write downs, exploration, cost of capital, not the lifting cost, but the total cost, mm -hmm. uh, hovers between 55 and 60 US dollars per barrel. Uh, so they make the stuff for 60 and they sell it for, for 20. They lose $40 a barrel uh, in demand constrained time, 65 million times a day. That gets rather boring. The investment thesis then is very simple. If your members believe that five or six years from now, when they go to start their car, assuming they have cars, will the car start? If the answer to that is yes, if they believe that the car will start, then they believe in US $60 oil. Exactly. Uh, what you're looking for is a circumstance just like that, where the cost of production worldwide, total cost of production worldwide, exceeds the price that the industry is selling the product for. Do those products exist today? Uh, not in oil anymore. The market forces worked much more rapidly than I thought they would, by the way. Mm -hmm. But certainly uranium uh, is a classic example of that. The stuff sells for 30 bucks a pound. It costs 55 bucks a pound, fully loaded to make. The industry loses 25 bucks a pound, 80 million times a year. Uh, that one's a no-brainer. Uh, Greta doesn't like it. Uh, Merkel doesn't like it. Uh, Biden is of mixed minds. But it doesn't matter. Even in a country like the United States, which believes erroneously, by the way, uh, that it's rich enough to be stupid, uh, uranium produces about 15% of total energy demand and 20% of baseload demand. Uh, and in the United States, the equation is simple. The price of uranium goes up or the lights go off. Those are the two choices. My suspicion is the price of uranium goes up. Uh, another example uh, might be phosphate fertilizer. Uh, well, pardon me, not phosphate, but potash. Uh, in, in the case of potash, what you have is a, is a two-tier global production system. The Russians uh, can make reasonable money at today's potash prices, but nobody else in the world can. Uh, do the Russians continue with their advantage and drive the rest of the world out of business? Uh, or do potash prices rise? My belief is that potash prices will rise. Uh, so in, in that circumstance, assuming that we want to eat five years from now, six years from now, if your viewers will look at me, they can tell I like to eat. Uh, you believe, in fact, that potash prices will increase. Okay. That's... So those would be two easy examples. But the thesis is really, really easy to understand, really hard to employ. If you think about your financial analysis, what you need to do in the resource business is adapt a new paradigm. When natural resource companies, big ones, are selling at very low price earnings multiples and they seem cheap, it's because commodity prices are unusually high. So when the companies seem their cheapest, they're their most expensive. Okay. When commodity prices have fallen apart uh, and companies' free cash flows are constrained by low commodity prices and their earnings, their price earnings ratios are negative or very high, 
assuming that they're relatively low cost producers of the commodity in question, which is itself underpriced, uh, when these companies seem very expensive, they're often very cheap. So it's important to look behind the numbers and see how the numbers are constructed if you're going to be in the, in the natural resources business. That's definitely insightful because, yeah, I think this is one of the questions I was going to make, like for finance educated people, but that are not experts in the commodities field, for example, uranium, uh, what would be like a simplified process to analyze the, these kind of companies, but you've already explained it. And it's really interesting because it's, it's a little bit different of what we could expect, right? Looking at that, those multiples, but really insightful. I don't know if to, to get exposure to those, to those kind of commodities, we have a couple of ways to, to do it, right? Uh, would you prefer to, like if you are entering the market, like you, you would uh, recommend us to, to go through, through royalties companies or through actual mining and exploration companies, buying physical commodities like uranium, it's impossible, it's impossible but gold and silver, we could also do it. How would you get exposed, exposed to, these, to these commodities? There is no one size fits all answer, I'm afraid. Uh, it depends, first of all, on the individual. How much risk is he or she willing to run? How much work is he or she willing to do? What is the time frame involved? <clears throat> And where are we in the market? If you are prescient enough to be in natural resources early in a sector, uh, I would argue with you that uh, the bull markets that you experience are profound enough that you don't need to outperform the market, uh, that you really just need to participate in the market. And I would argue early in the cycle or before the cycle begins that the largest, lowest cost producers uh, with the best historic uh, uh, ratios of return on capital employed, that is the most boring companies, are the right way to play it. When the generalist money comes into a sector, it looks for the biggest and most liquid companies first. So they move first. The second thing is that these big companies often pay fairly handsome dividends which means that if you're early in a sector, which I always am, it's a flaw in my personality, uh, the time value of money argument uh, is accounted for by the dividend. You know, if you are discounting uh, the net present value uh, of a cash flow stream at 5% and you're three years early, uh, one argues that you aren't early, you're wrong. But if you're offsetting that discount with a three and a half or 4% dividend, uh, then you can afford to be much more generous with yourself in terms of being early and employing contrarian strategies. Amazing, amazing. That's really a great point. Um, I would like to, to change a little bit the, the, the topic and make like a question that might be a little bit less asked or, or something like that or asked less frequently. But do you think that water can become a focal point in the commodity business in the future? That's a great question. I've been a water investor for 40 years. Uh, and I begin with a quip that water as an investment asset is unfortunately illiquid. Mm -hmm. uh, water is believed to be a human right. So rather than having the market dictate water, that is rather than water flowing uphill to utility, water flows downhill to votes. It's allocated politically. Uh, water is almost always subsidized, which is why we almost always have shortages, because you encourage waste in water. Uh, I, I don't know enough about Portugal or Spain to criticize their water law. I'm sure if I did, I could. 
but I know a lot about it investing in water in the United States. Uh, and as an example, in my home state, California, uh, 85% of the water that's used by humankind is used in agriculture, which generates 2.5% of GDP. Uh, the highest and best use of water, although it's inelegant, is uh, brushing teeth and flushing toilets. Uh, instead, we grow rice in the desert. Uh, we grow massive crops of alfalfa uh, involving 10 acre feet per acre. And we ship the alfalfa in returning containers to China to subsidize their dairy industry. What you say in terms of water as an investment theme is probably the most important investing theme of your lifetime, but it will involve a political fight, which will be extraordinarily nasty. Water should flow uphill to utility. There should be a market in water, but markets are messy. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> politics are, are messy in a different fashion. There's a wonderful phrase describing politics, uh, admittedly an English language quote, quip. It says that you understand the process of politics by looking at the origin of the word, word poly from the Latin for many, tick from the English colloquial for small blood-sucking insect. If you think about the process of water law around the world as involving many small blood-sucking insects, each trying to steal from the other while preventing the other from stealing from him or her, you will understand how water law works around the world. Okay, <laughs> that's really good. A really good thing, a really interesting point of view. Um, and yeah, water. I, I, I usually don't, don't listen to people talking about this because it's always about gold, silver, uranium, of course, but water, right? Uh, so thank you very much for your, for your answer. Um, now, also, because we're talking about sustainability, this thing of green future, clearly institutionals are looking more and more for ESG-driven companies. Um, and there is like a, a lot of greenwashing, as we also know. But people, people usually are focused on renewables or on green-friendly companies. Uh, what about game changers in the oil and gas and mining sectors? You you've talked about oil and gas and like we have to get <clears throat> used that it will not finish tomorrow, but and we, we need the oil and gas, right? But in these sectors that might be less green-friendly, as I was calling them, um, but that are still like mitigating their impacts, they, these might also be potential candidates for impact funds or something. Do, do you think that there is any company that fits into this description from these sectors? You know, ESG is rapidly uh, evolving. Uh, if you unpack the word E, uh, from a technical point of view, probably means the elimination or the reduction of deleterious materials exiting the mine site. But that isn't what it means. Uh, mining turns out to be unsightly. It's odd in my country, and I suspect in yours, that uh, things like golf courses, which people enjoy, or soccer pitches, get a pass. Uh, a big monoculture, like a golf course, or a series of small monocultures, <clears throat> like a soccer pitch, or a very large vineyard, or a very large almond grove, or olive grove, <clears throat> are very environmentally destructive. Uh, the farmer takes a vast chunk of land which might have uh, housed 50 or 60 species of flora and they kill everything except for the olive tree. <laughs> But because olive trees are green, uh, that gets a pass on the E. Irrespective of the destruction, what's important in the near term is the narrative. Uh, 
the politician who praises oil, uh, pardon me, olives, and dams mining, when in fact the surface footprint of the mine is tiny relative to the economic impact, is one who gets uh, reelected. Uh, you understand where I'm going with this? Uh, in terms of trying to understand the politics of ESG, yeah. we are early enough on that it's going to shift an awful lot. And I will tell you, too, in my career, <clears throat> that the consumer's tolerance uh, for the price aberrations that comes from politics are very limited. Uh, I, I remember as an example in the previous uranium bull market, uh, in 1998, 1999, going up to 2006, <clears throat> when I was first advocating the purchase of uranium companies, uh, audiences, live audiences in those days, it was pre-Zoom, uh, weren't merely bored by the concept because nobody had made money in uranium for 20 years. They were actively hostile. Uh, they thought this guy's advocating Hiroshima, Chernobyl, Nagasaki, Three Mile Island. What a despicable human being, you know? Now, from a contrarian's point of view, this is wonderful. Uh, I know I have no competition. It isn't just that the audience is bored. They hate it. It doesn't get better than this. What's interesting about that is five years later, when the uranium price had gone from 8 or $10 a pound to $100 a pound, and the price of the uranium juniors that I had been talking about had uniformly risen 20-fold or 30-fold, all of the people who had, uh, in prior incarnations, been hostile to uranium we're looking for stock tips. <laughs> so I think that the ESG debate uh, will vary. Germany would be a wonderful example. Uh, the Germans uh, believed that they were rich enough that they could consign their energy future to solar. The problem is in Northern Germany, the sun doesn't shine. Yeah. Uh, and they also wanted to use power at night. Now they did something from my point of view that was very, very funny. They started in, uh, importing massive amounts of low-grade U.S. high sulfur, high ash, lignite coal, which is to say they blew, they blew apart any chance that they might ever have uh, of making uh, their green protocols mm -hmm. by abandoning a green fuel, which is to say uranium, uh, in favor of coal. They also began to uh, import massive amounts of electricity from France, generated by nuclear, and Poland, generated by coal. The upshot of this uh, narrative-based cynicism was that the utility rates paid by Germans are about three times the utility rates paid by French. And my suspicion is over the next five years that the tolerance of the German ratepayer and the German taxpayer will change. And so the ESG debate in France will change too. Mm -hmm. The current nature of the, G, uh, of the ESG debate varies country by country and need by need. So it's going to be a very difficult theme for you to apply yourself to. And it will be a theme that doesn't go to your skill set. Your skill set is finance. Your skill set is numbers. To pay attention to the ESG theme, your skill set is going to have to be sociology, political science, uh, and Hollywood, uh, which is to say story. And I, I don't know about you, I'm... Uh, I'm incompetent in those realms. No, that's definitely a point. I was just asking also because I'm seeing that also in our field, right? Finance, a lot of funds, a lot of people are, a lot of asset managers are starting to, to trying to create frameworks in, for these ESG thing. 
And it will consistently change. I, I think in the near term, it's probably a very good uh, career alternative. The idea that you can forecast future trends in ESG around an investable theme involves a skill set that doesn't include finance. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's an interesting point of view. You, you would be better off being a movie critic, uh, in a sense. Uh, for myself, uh, I haven't owned a television, as an example, for about 30 years. And I'm singularly unable to anticipate uh, future narratives. I think I said that as politely as I'm able. <laughs> okay, that, that's pretty interesting. But still, do you, do you believe that like mining companies or oil and gas companies can, some of them at least, fit into these descriptions, these narratives? Or do you think that it, it, must, it, it must be different, like differentiated? Well, uh, I mean, a wonderful uh, test case for your young members would be to go to the website uh, and look at the town hall meeting for Lundin Petroleum. Uh, there's almost no substance on earth as reviled as petroleum. Uh, and the Lundines have met this head on. Uh, they will lower their carbon footprint per barrel of oil produced uh, to zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a company that has come to understand the narrative, but has also come to understand the technology around obviating the narrative. Uh, and they've done this while being one of the lowest cost full cycle producers uh, of oil and gas in the world. So the question that you ask uh, could be illustrated very well for your members uh, if they would pull up the website of Lundin Oil uh, and uh, play the most recent town hall meeting uh, okay. where Lundin talks about its development plans in the context of, quote, sustainability and ESG. And you'll see a company that has gone way, way, way further than most in the practical application of society's concerns around extractive industries. That's really, really interesting. And I'll definitely recommend and I will see that, that thing that you're seeing. Um, but I, I get your point regarding ESG. Um, I don't know, also about nuclear and, and uranium. I believe that at least for many of our members, even if your viewers that might also be viewing this <laughs> might find strange that for, for some of our members, it might be the first time they're actually listening to someone advocating for, for uranium. How could we get exposed to, to this sector? In which ways? There are certain companies that you would recommend? I'll tell you this. The, <clears throat> the investment narrative around uranium, uh, at least the speculative side of it, has become attractive enough in the market that the uranium juniors, the non-producing companies, the explorers, are uniformly overvalued right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the story has gotten ahead of the reality. <laughs> yeah. So participating in uranium uh, involves probably two strategies. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. There are physical uranium trusts trading on the London Stock Exchange, okay. uh, Yellow Cake, which holds physical uranium. Okay. Uh, there is a larger one trading in Canada called Uranium Participation Corp, uh, which also gives uh, investors the ability to hold by proxy physical uranium. It's not the kind of stuff that you want to throw in your basement, frankly. Uh, so owning it in certificated form is probably preferable to loading it into a truck and bringing it to your home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are really three companies on a global scale that are investable for uranium. 
they are as follows. Kazataprom, uh, the Kazakh producer, which trades in the London Stock Exchange, the largest and best uranium company in the world. By the way, it also pays a 5.5% dividend okay. uh, to make the weight tolerable. Uh, okay. The Canadian producer, Cameco, uh, which I would regard in second place, uh, it's had a 100% price increase in the last 18 months, which makes it from my point of view, 100% or 50% less attractive than it was before the price ran. Mm -hmm. uh, and the future comer in the uranium space, China General Nuclear or CGN Mining, uh, traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Uh, in terms of investable themes, a portfolio that was constructed of those three companies or, or those three companies and one of the two physical trusts, mm -hmm. depending on the investor's domicile, uh, would be something to look at. That's really insightful. Yeah, I will. I will give a look at that because I'm listening to some of your to some of your interviews recently, and, and yeah, you talk a lot about uranium. But sometimes I have this feeling like if I'm not an expert, how can and if my friends are not experts, how can I like recommend them to start with? You know, Guillermo, I would argue uh, that supposing yourself an expert believes that you can get it exactly right. Okay. Uh, and in. 48 years of resource markets, I think that the search, search for perfection uh, is a form of procrastination. Uh, bull markets and resources uh, are traditionally multi-year affairs because as we've described, uh, the industry can't uh, in the near term increase production to meet pricing signals in the market. Mm -hmm. uh, so what would in a normal industry be a two-year cycle in the uranium business or the gold business can easily be a 10-year cycle. Okay. Uh, and the dimension is much greater. Uh, these sectors, when they move, uh, often generate six or seven hundred percent index gains. Mm -hmm. The point of all that is that you don't have to get it exactly right. You just have to participate. <laughs> exactly. uh, you are, if you follow my lead, sadly, you're always going to be early, uh, which means that you have to be a little more patient than people your age normally are. Uh, and you don't have to worry about getting it exactly right. You just need to buy good capital allocators that are very low on the cost curve, uh, that are big enough that when the generalist money comes into the sector, they'll move first. Exactly. As you build your expertise in the sector, when the big money comes into Cameco, you can go down into the smaller companies before the big money finds its way there. <laughs> and you can let them chase you down the quality scale and up the leverage scale throughout the sector. There will become a time when your pals uh, look at the money that you've made in uranium and they say, Guillermo, you're a genius. And when that happens, you need to sell everything. Uh, okay. When it becomes popular, uh, then, then the sector is past its prime. That's wonderful. And of course, getting in earlier, it's better. So I, I would definitely follow the advice. Um, okay. Since we are like students, okay, like at least our members are students, I would like to, to ask you, because you've given a lot of tips during our conversation so right now, but if we want to, to start to understand the cyclical things of commodities, how to invest in them, what would you recommend? Like we have these, as I was mentioning before we started recording, like we have this department of, of commodities that produce articles in this, in this sense. Where should we start be looking at to educate ourselves in the commodity space? Five books. Uh, I assume, well, you're, you're aware of my familiarity with Portuguese, so I'm assuming that the audience 
uh, speaks English substantially better than I speak Portuguese. Uh, five books. The first would be Economics of One Lesson by Hazlitt, uh, which will teach you how the economy works as opposed to the way that you're taught it works in university, okay. uh, which is largely fraudulent. Um, it's an easy to read book. The important concepts are simply that markets work uh, and people act of their own volition. Uh, having read that, the second book that you should read is the best investment book ever written relative to the time required to read it, which is The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. Pay attention to two chapters in particular, Margin of Safety uh, and Mr. Market. Uh, Mr. Market is the best chapter on contrarian investing that I have ever seen uh, written. Uh, and uh, Mr. Market is the part of natural resource investing investments that 90% of the participants get wrong. Okay. Once you've suffered through the intelligent investor, uh, absolutely the best investment book ever written from my point of view is securities analysis. The concept of net present value, which you'll never get right, but you can get closer than other people do, relative to enterprise value is, from my point of view, the heart of investing. And securities analysis, uh, also by Ben Graham, does the best job of showing through various asset classes how you calculate the um, <clears throat> ratio between net present value, probabilistic net present value, and enterprise value uh, of any book I've seen. Uh, then uh, I'll give you a fun book, uh, Anti-Fragile okay. uh, by Taleb. Um, I'll just leave it there. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a vacation <clears throat> before the final book, which is the most impact impactful book I've ever read in my life. Uh, Human action by Ludwig von Mises. Uh, it is reputed to be an economics text, but it's not. Uh, it's uh, a discussion of individual psychology and mass psychology as it relates to volition or human will. Uh, and, uh, when you read human action and you come to understand the way that humans act uh, economically as individuals and as groups, uh, you will really truly be psychologically prepared uh, to take on markets. It isn't to say that you won't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. You'll just make considered mistakes. Now, it's a very difficult book. It was written in turgid German okay. and translated into turgid English. And if English isn't your primary language uh, and you're reading a, a doubly translated turgid work, uh, your, your listeners will either curse me uh, or use the book uh, to induce sleep. You know? I, understand. I understand your point, but let's give it a try. Um, I would say that that's that's really interesting and like I don't know but you didn't mention any commodity specific books or technical most interesting most people move themselves into commodity related study before they understand the basics of cyclical industry uh, and, and before they've dealt with their own personalities dealing with your own personality is a prerequisite uh, I think for any financial decision uh, human action, as an example, talks uh, a lot about the fact that all human beings believe themselves to be uh, dispassionate, rational analysts, mm -hmm. uh, which in colloquial English is horseshit. Uh, it's not true. 
we believe that the process that we engage in is taking information from all sources, analyzing that information, making rational decisions. What we actually do is we scan the horizon for information that supports what's comfortable for us, our thesis and bias. Uh, we very seldom challenge ourselves. Uh, it's okay, but you need to understand the process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The second thing is recency bias. Uh, it's ironic that uh, circumstances that have happened in the immediate past have much more impact on our actions in the future than a sense of history does. Uh, although history, which is to say 10-year performance, is much more important than 10-day performance. 10-day performance is something that weighs much more heavily on the human mind. And finally, the fact that many financial assets are uh, described in obtuse English as Geffen goods, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say we like stocks that have gone up. The price action justifies the narrative. If you, if you have a stock, as an example, that sells for 10 euro, and three months later it's selling for 20 euro, with no particular change in the affairs of the company, the fact that it's doubled makes people love it, but it's arithmetically precisely half as attractive. Uh, and wrapping your mind around that paradigm is an important part of understanding any type of investment, but particularly understanding investments that are so cyclical and so uh, capital intensive. I would argue that when you have, uh, if you have a basic understanding of finance, which I'm certain that your students do, uh, and you've talked about the five books that I've talked about, the best way to understand the resource business would be uh, to go on to the SEC's EDGAR site uh, and pull, say, five years of annual reports and quarterly reports from ExxonMobil uh, and look at uh, the write-downs they took and why they took them look at their cash generating capabilities in various oil price scenarios, but read the proxy and decide how the decisions were made. Uh, and if you do that, uh, if you did it for uh, Rio Tinto, uh, a name that should be uh, fresh in the mind of Iberian students. Um, it is. Uh, and ExxonMobil, uh, I would suspect that you would learn more than you could from any publication on earth concerning how to invest in natural resources. I wouldn't give that advice to a generalist audience, but a, a group of students who are already skilled in balance sheets and income statements and the interplay between balance sheets and income statements mm -hmm. uh, would do well to construct their own theme from real world as opposed to supposed data. Yeah, definitely. And that's a great advice. That's a great advice. So, well, I think I don't want to take you like to, to take you longer or to take your time. So thank you very much for coming. But I still have like a, a last question here. And it's more like, if I may, a more philosophical question, because like I've noticed that you've said in past interviews that one of the best things that happened to you was to lose all of your money. And that's yes. why that might be a little counterintuitive. It might be a little bit counterintuitive, but actually I see the same pattern, for example, in Ray Dalio's principles book, The Work and Life Principles. Uh, from Ray Dalio. And my question is, should we always lose all of our money at some point in our lives? Or at least what should we understand in the early steps of our careers that you understood clearly by having passed through this experience? My hope is that by talking to student groups <clears throat> that uh, I, I can share the circumstance that caused me to lose my money. 
uh, and armed with that knowledge, young people won't need to lose theirs. Um, it was useful for me in two fashions. Uh, I lost my money by overstaying a bull market. Uh, the decade of the 70s was the most extravagant bull market that resources have ever seen. As a young man in those markets, making a lot of money early when most of my competitors weren't making much money at all, uh, I came to confuse a bull market with brains. Uh, I didn't realize that I made money because I was in the way of a market. The oil price went from $2 to 20, 25. Gold price went from 35 to 850. The silver price went from a buck and a half to 50. And I thought I was smart. Uh, what I forgot in spades is that markets work. The cure for high prices is high prices. The cure for low prices is low prices. And I didn't understand that recency bias uh, permeates all elements of society. The International Energy Agency was as stupid as I was, uh, as was Barclays Bank, as was the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, as was the EEC. Uh, the truth is that most organizations and most minds, individual or collective, take existing data and they extrapolate it ad nauseum. They forget that markets work. The fact that the commodities markets uh, collapsed uh, was something that anybody who had been through markets before would have understood, but I hadn't and I didn't. And in my hubris, being a young man wanting to believe it was smart, uh, I took the words of the big thinkers to heart because it confirmed what I wanted to be true. And I learned a truly ugly lesson, but I learned a lesson that would uh, shelter me from making the same mistake ever again. I'm not trying to say I get it right exactly, but I get it way less wrong than most people do. The second thing I learned, uh, and, and unfortunately I didn't learn it concurrently with the first lesson, when a little later in my career, uh, as I had, you know, rebuilt my business, rebuilt my reputation, rebuilt a bit of my fortune. <clears throat> uh, my wife said to me, uh, don't worry about making money. Uh, worry about doing something that you like to do so much that other people can't compete with you because they won't put in the effort or the intensity. Worry about generating utility for other people. And if you worry about generating utility for other people, I suspect they'll want to pay you for it uh, and you'll make more money that way. And she turned out to be exactly right. Uh, when I stopped worrying about making money, when I stopped worrying about, when I started worrying about generating utility for other people, mm -hmm. my own personal fortunes turned around immediately. Uh, it, it, it won't appeal that my next statement to your, how would you say, uh, let's just say that it won't appeal to some of your students. But the truth is, if you want to be rich yourself, the easiest way to do it is to make other rich people richer. Uh, rich people, contrary to popular opinion, are quite generous. They like money and they are willing to pay to get more. <laughs> if your reason for studying finance is partly your own personal fortune, the surest way in the world to get rich is to make rich people richer. Okay. That's, that's a great advice, actually. Like, I understand also, and as you were saying, that some people got, got into finance, and that's perfectly normal also, uh, to try to make the poor better, or I don't know, to invest the capital of people of middle class and try to make them rich. But that's definitely one of the, of the main ways of getting richer, as you said, right? You know, I myself am quite active philanthropically, uh, not politically with other people's money, but honestly with my own. 
and I have been a backer of microcredit, as an example, lending money to very poor people without collateral for a very long time. Um, that's different than getting rich. Uh, philanthropy is a consumer good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think it's something that you ought to consign to the politicians or society because they confuse attracting votes or serving a narrative with doing good. Uh, when I do good, I want to actually do good. Uh, I want to invest more than money. So I participate in Students for Liberty, a worldwide student libertarian group. I participate in various microcredit things. I personally consider those to be consumer goods. It's what I do with my money. Uh, it makes me, uh, yeah, it's a consumer good. I, I enjoy it. I think it's worthwhile, but I don't believe I have the right to do it with other people's money. I believe I have an obligation to do it with my own. That's that's awesome. And I was also thinking that you have the, the way of making money, right? But then you have the way of distributing your money. So it's the other end of the of the equation. So of course you can earn your money by making richer rich people richer, right? But then you can also do what what you're saying. So philanthropy, you can help people around you, you can can do a lot of stuff with your money. So for for the general good. So and I also believe that having more money gives you more opportunities, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It also comes with some bad things, of course, but it's as everything in life. So, By the way, I've made as many mistakes in philanthropy as I did investing. Uh, it takes a long time to understand how to give money away mm-hmm. responsibly. Uh, there are more charlatans in finance, uh, pardon me, more charlatans in philanthropy than there are in finance. Yeah. And so <laughs> I would urge, <laughs> urge your young listeners who get in the position to give money away that they invest at least as much time and toil as they do treasure. That makes sense because people, when they, when they, when they give money away, there's always the, maybe the mistake I would say of being like subsidizing people, right? So in subsidies, maybe they're not the most efficient way or productive way to help other people. So yeah, it, I understand. Look, look at the balance sheet and the income statements of the philanthropies. Very often, over fifty percent of the money raised goes to money raising and GNA, mm-hmm. which is to say that less than fifty percent goes to the ascribed purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you saw uh, a, a private sector company where GNA and cost of capital exceeded 50% of book, you'd say, what? <laughs> like, what are you smoking? Uh, but in philanthropies, it happens all the time because they have a glossy brochure. You know, they tell you some story about one woman who benefited from their project in some part of India. And they neglect to say that they've missed, that they wasted $50 million dollars a year uh, on, on their main scheme. Yeah. Well, this has been truly amazing to be speaking here with you. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, I don't know, at least for me, it was outstanding. I learned a lot. And I'm sure that the people that were here in Portugal, not right now, but afterwards, that will, be, that will have access to this video. I'm pretty sure that they, they will find it pretty insightful as well. Uh, and well, for your more regular viewers that might be watching us as well, I hope that we were able to add some value. Maybe it wasn't the mainstream interview that usually people do. It wasn't that technical also. But well, I hope that we have discussed some relevant topics that might be overlooked sometimes. I don't know. But thank you very much, Vic. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Hey. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of Crunch the Numbers podcast by Lisbon Investment Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share it with your friends. And if you want to follow our work, including market summaries and our newsletter, you can now head out to our website on the description below. Thank you, have a great day 
and we'll see you next month.